So this um, exhibition is, is actually divided into、um, four sections. Four, yeah, yeah. Anyway, yeah. <laughs> Hope I'm correct. <laughs> yeah, that's why we need a roadshow. So I, you know, I like the challenge, and、mm. I like to see something new,、mm. that, something that you've never seen before. Welcome to Glam City. On Glam City, we speak to the hardworking people in Australia's galleries, libraries, archives, and museums. We're back for another season, our fourth. Can you believe it? It's been two years of pure historical fun. On this episode of Glam City, we are joined by curator Roger Leung from the Powerhouse Museum, or the Museum of Arts and Applied Sciences, and we're talking about a very special exhibition they have on at the moment—a retrospective of the fashion designer Akira Isagawa. We're going to talk to Roger here in the studio, and then we're going to walk through the exhibition itself with Akira. Welcome, Roger. Thank you, Anna. Can you tell us a little bit about how? The idea for this exhibition started with Akira. Yeah, well, it, it, very simply, really, we Akira hosted a studio visit to his、um, studio in Marrickville about almost two years ago now, and it's a great space. It's such a creative wonderland of, of textiles and craftsmanship and whatnot, and、um, it feels more like an artist studio than a kind of business factory to me. And and upstairs from the working area. Uh, is his archive of something like three thousand garments and、um, samples and things and like that. And he's kept them all. He's well. He's he's pretty much archived pretty thoroughly from about two thousand onwards. And、mm. he's and then he's got a handful of things from years going back to the beginning in ninety three. So I was just bowled over by the fact that he had this incredible goldmine of his work. And you know he is one of the greatest Australian designers. There's no doubt there. So I just went back to work so excited. And said, "We've got to do something with this. You know, we have to do it really quickly because、um, I'm sure someone else will、mm. think of the idea very soon.、Mm. And、uh, you know, also the other thing that we realised was that his 25th anniversary was coming up、uh, in 2018. And when we put it to Akira, he he absolutely embraced it. So we went from there. Why is he such a star? I mean, I don't necessarily mean a glam or a doyen, but what what is it about Akira that is so?" Um, special, special, and alluring. I mean, he manages to capture something which、yeah. is both as an insider and an outsider, which is incredible. Yeah, I personally think it's one. He's contributed、uh, a very Asian-inflected、uh, kind of aesthetic into Australian fashion, so he's given us a new set of kind of vocabularies or whatever you want to call it to work with. And using that inflection, he's created these kind of. Very artful, crafted, artisanal clothes that kind of go beyond fashion, I think, to some、mm. extent, and that's why his work, I think, appeals to people who are interested in art and craft and design beyond just you know、mm. the latest fashions in Zara or whatever.、Um, There's something、um, really universal about that aesthetic, but there's also something quite particular. And he captured a moment in Australia where it perhaps was turning towards. Asia, like there's, there's obviously an appetite there for his work. It's not like he's foisting it upon an unwilling audience. There's a real, yeah, you know, people wanting to engage with it, which is very curious. That's true. But then, then I just thought, well, of course, you know, there is that appetite. But the thing is, he did it. He does、mm-hmm. it in such a special way, and he makes it so alluring and、mm-hmm. so enticing, or whatever. You know, he's, he's, he's to me, he's a bit of an artist, really, rather than a. Commercial designer. I don't think a lot of the people who buy his clothes sort of see his clothes different from a, a print or a photograph or a painting they might hang on their、mm. wall. Had you had your eyes on him 
for a while as a curator. Had you ever thought, was he on a wish list or was it something that just came out of the blue and it was serendipitous? No, he's he's always been on my radar and I'm more, I'm relatively new to working with Australian fashion. In Melbourne, I worked mainly with international fashion and textiles. But uh, when I worked in Canberra at the NGA, I remember there was a parade organised by uh, Helen uh, from Alibi Boutique in Canberra. She organised a parade of Kira's work and there's these two designers from Melbourne with the label Six. That's the first time I'd sort of seen them in his clothes in the flesh. So, you know, I just knew there was something special. And, of course, he, he in the 90s, he was really kind of like one of those young stars of, of uh, the Australian fashion universe. What's really kind of endearing about his work is that, uh, he, you know, he's clearly and he will say this, tell you this himself, he's been influenced by those contemporary Japanese designers like Rei Kawakubo of Comte de Garçon and Yoji Yamamoto. But he was born and brought up in Kyoto, which is a deeply conservative, traditional town, and he was brought up in a pretty conservative family, and uh, which he escaped by coming to Sydney. Uh, he's absolutely in love with those kind of traditions uh, particularly the kimono, and but all these kind of craft traditions, the way of patching and appliquing and pleating and folding and, and so forth, mm. that uh, he clearly kind of, his kind of upbringing has impressed on him. What you've said reminds me of visiting Kyoto myself a couple of years ago and visiting some of the um, shrines there and people hire traditional clothes to walk through the shrines in. Yes. So there is that really deeply, at one level, conservative, but also stunning and sort of a deep conservative historical aesthetic, which is very evident when you go there and is not really evident here in Australia. No. And I think think there's a real core there for Akira, but I think what really makes it uh, so special in the Australian and international context is that Akira is also a very quirky, modern Australian figure. He, like, shortly after he arrived in Australia, he was totally immersed in the kind of um, alternative party circuit, the rap, the rap party, the what do they call it, recreational arts team parties, and that was like very queer, very multicultural, very sort of um, underground, and it was all about people doing things that were off the wall and uh, mixing it up and, and just breaking all the rules. And I think there's also that has, that's the reason why he stayed in Australia from mm. what I can see, that finding that scene here and the freedom that that involved. And I think there's this freedom to his work while he draws on this conservative core of tradition, he, there's also this slightly edgy quality that makes his work very contemporary. Yeah. Um, You can imagine that coming to a place where there weren't really any boundaries written down would be freeing in in an artistic sense, I guess. Exactly, especially Sydney in the 80s and early 90s. Um, Maybe not so much now. (laughs) (laughs) What was the sort of 
starting point, the conversation, did you know where it was going? Did you know what the show would look like? Or is it sort of emerged in conversations with Akira? It's obviously a very deep um, and broad collaboration. It was a very kind of close collaboration. Myself and my co-curator, Christina Stankowski, um, we set about scanning thousands of lookbook images, about a thousand, because we wanted to kind of get a sense of his career over that 25-year period with a total open mind. So it was from that that we kind of then started to work with Akira. So over a period of about 15 months, it was this iterative process of just working in the archive, probably for a good six months, pulling hundreds of garments and then and photographing them in various ways and, and trying to work out what the broad themes might be. And for a listener just sort of coming in and thinking, how the hell do you put on an exhibition? You had over 3,000 garments. You had approximately 40 people collaborating on it from curators to designers. How do you get 40 people and 3,000 garments? I guess it's a bit like, you know, throwing a stone into a pond of still water. So it's kind of like these concentric circles that they get bigger as you go out. And in, in a way, that's how the project starts. It started with just myself, the co-curators, Melanie and Christina, and Akira, just working in that archive for many months and just thinking through and talking a lot through there. And then once we'd made kind of like a 200% selection, which would have to be whittled down, uh, we involved the exhibition designer, Jemima Wu, the graphic designer, Maria Mosquera, the project coordinator, uh, Helen Johnson, oh, and the textile conservator Suzanne Chi and the registrar Sarah Poynton. So for a whole number of different reasons, they were really important in that initial phase in terms of actually mapping out the shape and the themes and the look of the exhibition. We had a programs team, a volunteers team, and in fact, I think by the time you added every single person who's had something to do with it, probably is closer to about 80 or up to 100 wow. people. Did each of you have a favourite piece? Piece? Oh, well... Or a special piece that you followed, managed to follow through from... I don't have any particular favourites. I was asked the other night to name, pick out a piece. And there is one piece from his Resort 2019, 2019 collection, which I love because it's kind of a very ambiguous piece. It's made of cotton in this kind of tropical Hawaiian-style print, which he, he's never, ever used before. It's totally not Japanese. It's some cheesy print from the 80s. Uh, he used the back, the underside of that print, but then he combi- he spliced it up into this kind of cubist shapes with these sort of funny flounces. And then not fl- it's not flu-fru-fru, mm. but he ended up with this very long dress. But it's, it's, it's not clear whether it's an evening dress or a day dress. And then also he's spliced it with these um, kasuri woven textiles from Japan, which are really expensive because kasuri is like a tie-dyeing of the threads before you weave them. Very labour-intensive. Very labour-intensive. And it also uses this uh, traditional Japanese technique where half of the fibre is... uh, paper made from I think some sort of rag. Oh I've heard of this yeah. Yeah so and it's you know it comes from a part of Japan where the water is incredibly clear but the fabric isn't the look of the fabric is incredibly modest until you actually know the story behind it and then you look at all the minute so-called imperfections in the in the the break in the weave from the tie-dye and so forth. 
One of the interesting things I find about this exhibition is, in a way, um, putting them into a sort of a, a static place is not what they were intended for. They're intended to be worn and walked around in and so on. And yet at the same time, they're almost too good to be worn and they should be put up on display. It's a very interesting mix of... of um, of art and functionality. Yeah, I know. It's, it's every sort of fashion curator's kind of nightmare, how to kind of bring something to life when not only is mo- movement really part of it, but mm. actually flesh and bone. And yeah, it's a really hard one. I think with Akira, we decided to avoid trying to kind of create any sense of a body, uh, like, a, like a, a body with large arms and legs and so forth. And that's why we went for those very abstract sort of tailor dummy shapes and, and hanging and then flat display and so forth, because we wanted people to see them more as artworks. And in terms of the movement, you know, uh, we did include some Sydney Dance Company footage, which I think um, is really important for those costumes particularly. Mm. You're listening to Glam City on 2SER 107.3. To download this show, head to 2SER.com or your favourite podcast app and look for Glam City. This show is made by the Australian Centre for Public History at UTS with the support of 2SER. Let's go now into the exhibition itself at the Powerhouse Museum, where we're joined by Akira Isagawa. Um, yeah, so this um, exhibition is, is actually divided into um, four sections. Uh-huh. Yeah. Four, yeah. yeah. Anyway, yeah, <laughs> hope I'm correct. Yeah. Uh, the first um, um, section is called Journey. Mm. And then um, that is really literally a journey actually coming from Japan and um, landed in Australia. It was actually 33 years ago. Yeah, and um, I start designing and after graduating at TAFE. Sydney campus, yeah, and so there's actually earlier work exhibited within that section in Journey. Were you interested in fashion or design in Japan before? I was always interested in any sort of, like, I suppose, some um, artistic object, not necessarily just in fashion, but um, could be could be flowers. So, like, for example, object that uh, could be ceramics or could be something like, you know, like we find on the street, little um, found object. Since I was a little, I, was collect- I used to collect the little stones and pebbles and stuff like that usually actually relates to actually nature really yeah yeah but i didn't realize actually how beautiful um the kimono was till um arrived in australia and then went back to japan and then rediscovering kimono was actually what was a great um it was a great moment yeah did that happen do you think because you came to australia and it was some kind of connecting thread pun unintended yeah definitely uh, um it's a lot to do with actually staying in Sydney for 12 months. It made a big difference to, to rediscover a beauty within certain traditional elements that Japan offered. Yeah. Can we go and have a look at a kimono and you can take us through some of those elements? Yes. So can you tell us what we're looking yeah. at? Yeah. Um, so this section we call it kimono actually in fact um there's a signage there it says integral to isoka's design practice yeah uh, it has become integral I didn't expect that when i started yeah, yeah. so um, um when i first went back to japan i went to flea market and um it's only was it's only like 20 minutes um by bicycle from my uh, my parents house um i used i remember i used to go there with my grand grandmother 
yeah, but I realized I haven't been back actually for quite some time. So I was curious to see that what sort of traditional object I could find. And that's where I discovered a lot of kimonos. Yeah. And I bought quite a few. So when I went home, uh, I showed what I bought like, to my mother. And uh, she thought um, it was quite interesting, she thought, because uh, she never thought I would buy such a traditional object. And uh, um, she gave me, she gave me her kimonos as well. Oh yeah. Yeah, yeah. And uh, and also she even contacted her sisters, my aunties. So they came and then gave me a few as well. Mm. So I had a lot of kimonos to bring back to what's Sydney. What's the kind of, what's the uh, characteristics of a kimono that you <coughs> were, I guess that you were attracted to as a traditional object, but also how you, the how that has inform some of these more contemporary interpretations? Yeah. Well, um, kimono had such a... Um, kimono has such an interesting shape, you know. It, um, it's all based on oblong shape mm. pattern and um, it has no curve within design. Mm. And um, um, as a garment, it's, it's, uh, it's one size fits all because it is very generously cut and also... Um, doesn't have any gender specific like unisex items uh, so I thought the yeah, concept itself is quite interesting yeah. and visually um, it's really pleasing to your eye especially colours mm. you know you see vibrant colours particularly red mm. and the mm. iconic kind of prints of the mm. cherry blossom or you know there's sort of images that recur on these fabrics aren't they Cherry blossom, it's yeah, exactly. Um, the birds, yes, usually claim claims, and um, iris is mm-hmm. quite common too. Mm-hmm. Um, ponds and mountains, yeah. So, is the um, purpose of the kimono what's the purpose of that uh, kind of utilitarian? It's it's unisex, it doesn't have a particular shape. Is there a reason for that? Because it strikes me that it's interesting that it's utilitarian in its shape and then ornate in its design at the same time. Well, the kimono, the nature of kimono is highly um, ecological because um, there's no waste um, when it comes to making kimono because um, you don't even have to actually cut. You don't need a pattern. You just need a measurement to actually to assemble, cut and assemble kimono. So you could use actually um, like precious fabric because you know the fact that you're not going to waste anything. You know? um, uh, so that's why actually a lot of artisans like, made such an effort uh, to produce beautiful textile, mm. yeah, and then they tend to recycle um, silk, especially mm-hmm. as well. Like for example, um, if you were like 12, 13 years uh, of age, and um, you have somewhere to go, like for example, for New Year's Eve, people dress up in a traditional gear, and um, as a young girl, you tend to wear something in bright red, pink. But when they get married, they might not wear such a bright colors anymore. So they recycle, the, uh, re-dye yeah, those yeah, yeah. kimonos, unpick them, and then dye it, and then, re, and then reassemble wow. it. I was struck um, <coughs> visiting Kyoto, going to some of the shrines that people um, wear kimonos as they're going through the shrine, like they might hire them or bring them from home, or I'm not sure, but there's something um, that Japanese people are attaching a kind of, you know, I'm going to a historical place, and I will wear this sort of traditional dress. I guess people 
embodying history or something, you know, like mm. wanting to dress up in yeah. the sort of well, style uh, especially, of... Especially uh, going to Shinto shrine. Yeah. Actually, that's where um, traditionally you get married. So sometimes actually you do see um, the bride and groom in a traditional wedding outfit mm. um, in that sort of environment. And um, Japan is an interesting country because there are two religions coexist in quite harmonious way. The one is Shinto and the one is Buddhism. And so you get married in Shinto outfit in Shinto shrine and um, you have a funeral in temple um, in a Buddhism mm-hmm. manner. And the uh, um, atmosphere is actually quite different. I mean, of course, one is celebration. One is actually there's, there's a place that we have to mourn. Um, so there's a kimono for temples uh, when, when you attend the funeral, like it's, it's all in black. If we look at, say, this <coughs> beautiful dress, which has black silk, could you describe it for us? Well, this dress that is made out of, in fact, actually, uh, it's not a silk, actually. It's, it's got a particular sheen, mm-hmm. doesn't it? But uh, it's a cotton. It's a cotton organdy mm. oh, yeah. that uh, it's woven in Switzerland. Yeah, it's not Japanese textile, actually. Yet. And the reason, actually, this dress is in kimono section is because, uh, oh, because those straps yeah. which um, attach to the dress, they are made out of vintage obi. Obi is a belt. Uh, when you wear kimono, you always wear a belt with it. Yeah, and so uh, um, well, that's actually that obi was found in flea market in Kyoto. This um, this pattern started well when I made a, this particular shape of the dress. Well, you you start with paper mm-hmm. and then you make a pattern, and then and then you decide actually that's the right shape. You may have to make a toile. Toile is like prototype to see that if uh, if it hangs well or is that what you like, what mm-hmm. I like, what I envisage. Anyway, uh, when I started uh, um, drawing this pattern, I started with a square, though. And um, literally, this dress um, has um, this uh, 30, 360 degrees of material because it's a square with actually holes in the middle. Yeah, so it has got some sort of um, a reference yes. uh, to, uh, to a shape that um, yeah. rather than actually a circle, yeah. it's a square. Yeah, and that's how you get both. I mean, what we're looking at here is, I guess you could say, like a int- really interesting artistic fusion between the traditional and contemporary, and yeah. that's a case in point, isn't it? Where it's yeah. A yeah, I mean, this is not so obvious yeah. that the fact that it was actually 360 yeah. degrees shape, yeah. Yeah. but actually it is. <laughs> how, how would this be perceived in, in Japan? I think um, because the Western method of cutting material and assembling garments is quite new to Japanese culture because it's up to um, 20th century, really, like majority of Japanese people wore kimono on a daily basis. So traditional way of cutting pattern is, is not as um, practiced or fluent um, it's a safe example, actually, in, in, in France or Italy. Uh, so I noticed that um, especially contemporary Japanese designers um, uh, from the 80s and 90s, they merged. Mm-hmm. That's, that's when actually, like, you know, 1980s, um, early 80s, that some Japanese um, contemporary designers merged. Um, they um, use um, intellectual uh, method of, uh, of cutting dresses mm-hmm. 
like inventing the, its own their own yeah, method yeah. to actually cut individual wow. shape because uh, traditional Western dress didn't exist before, so they yeah. ten- they invented themselves yeah. how to cut patterns. Could this have been possible in Japan, or do you almost need to go outside Japan in order to rethink the sort of traditional Japanese aesthetic? It's uh, it's traditional, but at the same time, it's highly contemporary because mm-hmm. um, um, because of the invention of cutting, a new way of cutting dresses or new way of cutting jackets and. Skirts, which you learnt in Australia, encouraged to actually to to make something individual. Okay. I mean that's what I learned at school. But um, in terms of actually cutting patterns, I learned um, traditional method because that's what actually the school offered offered sure. for you to learn. Yeah. But inventing a new way of cutting dresses, you've got to actually invent it yourself. No yeah. one would would teach you how to do it. <laughs> I mean, you've got to have a basic um, knowledge of making clothes, patterns, assembling, you know, the material to make into a jacket or dresses. Yeah. But I find it actually it's quite, um, quite boring, really. Yeah, quite boring <laughs> to make something that's so basic. So I, you know, I like the challenge and mm. I like to see something new, mm. that, something that you've never seen it before. That brings us to the close of another Glam City episode for today. If you'd like to hear more from us, head to the 2SER website, 2SER.com. You can also search for us in your favourite podcast app. And hit us up on Twitter. You'll find me at Anna Hope Clark. This podcast is made by the Australian Centre for Public History at UTS with the support of 2SER 107.3. If you want to get in touch, you can email us glamcity at 2ser.com Thanks so much to Roger Lung and the whole team at Mass for taking us through the Akira Isagawa exhibition today. 